0: This week's episode of Thinking Sideways is not brought to you by another fantastic sale by the Silver King. Instead, it's brought to you by boom, 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 da boom, boom. Yeah, recognize that the theme from some Western TV that was show that was on forever. And uh, you know, you too can have a hand in creating an iconic intro theme for a series. Uh, yeah, you can work on our intro. We have a music intro right now, which everybody loves, but not everybody quite loves hundred percent. And so we've decided to have a contest uh, among all of our listeners uh, to create a new one. For the rules, go to our website. That's thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. The rules are all there. All you got to know is the deadline is July 31st, 2017. So get your entries in as quick as you can.
1: Thinking Sideways.
2: I do the aliens. You must what you have there I
1: don't know, stories of things we simply don't know the answer to.
0: Hi there, welcome to another episode of Thinking Sideways. I am your host, Joe, joined as always by Steve and Devin, and today we're going to bring you another fantastic mystery.
3: I'm mad at you guys, actually,
0: yeah, so what? I don't know if I can do this. I'm what? Bothered. What? Uh, we
3: you, are. you're forgetting about something very important. Uh is
0: it? Your what birthday? Did you got your hair cut?
3: <laughs> no, it's our anniversary. That's what? It's our anniversary.
0: Oh. We've well, been doing uh, the show for four well, yeah, years, no, like no, today. Uh, I knew that. I, I oh. of course I, I no, I knew about that, sure.
3: So or we did you have anything planned? Are we going out to a nice dinner? Like
0: Um What's going well, on. actually, no. We we had a big plan to do a special anniversary episode, right, Steve? Of
4: course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah, well,
0: yeah. It, so,
3: it, it was a surprise.
0: We, yeah, we hadn't. No, we haven't forgotten anything. Okay. Yeah. All right. You sure? Okay. Now. And, yeah. Okay. Hey, no, seriously, we would never forget our anniversary, day. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> what are you saying here? What kind of guys do you think we are? Uh, I don't We're know. smarter than that. Oh mm-hmm. yeah.
3: <laughs> okay. All right. So I guess all right, we have something planned.
0: Yeah, something very special. Okay. Um... Uh... Of course, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. It's just like the, the the ring in the bag on the top of the TV. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, and <laughs> what? and uh,
5: The oh. Ring
3: in the bag on top of the TV. So, sorry,
0: <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny.
4: Keep going. Yeah.
0: No, no, uh, no. I'm teasing our listeners here because yeah, you guys have something really fantastic. But you got a up.
4: ring in a bag on top of the TV though.
0: This is just like in the TV news, and they tell you they, they tell you about that fantastic story coming up, coming and up you know next. what that means? After the commercials. Yes. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Okay, and oh, by the way, uh, before I forget, this topic has been suggested actually by quite a few of our listeners. It's a Uh, popular one. Oh, yeah, it's a huge one. And uh, I'm not sure this list includes everybody, but... uh, It does not. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But I have on my list Brooke, Joe, David, Kay, and Matt. And as for all the rest of you that suggested it and didn't get added to my list, I apologize deeply.
3: We usually do about five, and then we're like, okay. That's (laughs) enough. There's
0: only so much room in the Google spreadsheet for names, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. But uh, our mystery is about the Velisca Axe murders of 1912.
3: I can wait. Do you hear it? Can you hear them all cheering? Yeah,
0: I can't do. <laughs> yeah, big surprise to you—you you didn't know about this because we put this little thing on the, on the front of the episode that says "generic mystery." I uh,
4: <laughs> so really no should idea. make that the description you for should. this one. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So the Velisca ass murders are—they're kind of a big one. Uh, eight people were were killed in their beds, and so well, that's pretty big, yeah. wouldn't you say? And this involved the Moore family of Velisca, Iowa. Uh, Willisga, by the way, is a little small town at the time in 1912, it was about, I believe... Because that's when our, our mystery takes place, is 1912. Yeah, it was in 1912. And, uh, it was a town back then of about 2,500 people. I think it's actually shrunk a little bit since then. Hmm. But, uh, it's in southwest Iowa. And, of course, I've looked at it on street view. It's a, it seems like it a pleasant little town. mm mm-hmm. uh, Unfortunately, damn you, Google, you can't drive past the actual murder site itself on Google Streets. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, it's a conspiracy. I know when I say "damn you, Google," I am kind of looking at gift horse in the mouth. (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the the Moore family. Uh, They include Josiah Moore, uh, who's also known as Joe Moore, also known as J.B. Uh, He was age forty-nine. That's why Sarah Moore, age 39, Uh, they lived with their kids in a house at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca, Iowa. And so you can look it up on Google the way I did. It's still there. And and it's still, it's a tourist attraction, by the way. Oh, yeah. The house
4: has been restored.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it has been. Uh, Yeah, it sort of fell into disrepair there, but somebody did restore it. It's now on the list of historic places. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Sure. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Their four kids were Herman, Mary, Arthur, and Paul. That's from oldest to youngest. Herman was 11, the oldest, and Paul, the youngest, was five. So small kids. I mean, old enough to operate farm machinery, sure. But I mean, not in old 1912. <laughs> <of> course,
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Son, yeah. go get the thresher.
0: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Don't fall under again. <laughs> Joe Moore had a farm equipment business in Villisca, which was reportedly very successful. Uh, he had started out years before, I think about 1900. Working for a guy named Frank Jones, also of Vallisca. Joe worked for Frank for seven years before he left to start his own business. He was the top salesman at Frank Jones' farm business, but he left in nineteen oh seven, reportedly because he didn't like working from seven AM to eleven PM six days a week. What? Yeah, That's go crazy figure, huh? town. <laughs> He's I know. Yeah. And uh when Joe Moore left, he took the John Deere account with him, which apparently didn't endear him to Frank. Sure. Uh, well, surprise much.
3: again. Yeah, that yeah. had to
0: be a pretty valuable account. Oh, I'm sure. It was, yeah, John Deere was probably the biggest account in town. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John Deere's big in, yep. in, those, in the Midwest. And So actually, basically that means that, because usually stores are, sell
4: certain brands, he was the only only store selling John Deere.
0: Uh, yeah. As far as I know, yeah. Okay,
4: yeah. I just making yeah. sure that that's what I understood by taking the account. That's yeah. what that
0: meant. I don't think John Deere really wanted to have more than one dealership in any given town.
3: Yeah, time. I, I especially
0: a town of, of that size. Yeah, 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 and so yeah. So I'm sure that was a blow to Frank. Although, as far as I know, he stayed in business. He actually, Frank Jones went on to become. He was still fairly successful. He became a state senator. Although this whole brouhaha with the murders and everything kind of scotched his political career just a little bit yeah. later mm-hmm. on. But mm-hmm. well, we'll talk about that a little later. But yet another reason for Frank Jones to really dislike Joe Moore. And they didn't get along. And typically they were known to cross the street when they approached each other on the sidewalk to just avoid each other.
4: Yeah, that's that's good terms right there.
0: Yeah, really good terms. Uh, and the, reason I, the only reason I bring that up uh, is that if anything unpleasant were to happen to Joe Moore and his family, I'm not saying it would. But if it did were to happen, well, Frank might be somebody the police would want to take a look at. But just saying. But more on that later. Uh, I should also mention the, or at least describe the physical surroundings of the Moore's house. Uh, as I, I've said, their address previously, five hundred eight East Second Street, uh, which you can see on Google. It's on the eastern outskirts of Villisca. Uh There is some new development to the east, uh, but not a lot. They're really even, and they're kind of on the outskirts of town. And, and from what I've heard, in nineteen twelve. There were a few houses there to the east of them, and that was it. That was the edge of town. Mm-hmm. And the house was also on a large lot, had a barn. Uh, there was room for some farm animals, uh, which included at least some horses and some chickens. And I don't know anything else about any other animals, but uh, they did. They apparently did not have a dog. I mean, I, hmm. We can guess this because, well, you know. What, what happens, a, yeah. If like they had had a dog, maybe th- maybe things would have turned out differently. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we would never know about this family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and last of all, uh, if you look on Google, you'll note that they are six blocks north of the railroad tracks that run through town. Uh, not that that, that has anything to do with anything, but in that, at that time in 1912, about maybe 30 trains a day passed through the town. It's and not nothing. That's not nothing, you know, and you're that close to the railroad tracks. Well, you know, hey. uh, and, and lastly, more about the town of Villisca. Uh, it's one of those little towns that you think of as people never lock their doors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Although I I have heard in other places that actually most people did lock their doors in Willisca at night. But, you know, I don't know. Hard to say. It's really hard to say. Um, uh, And... Because so, people wonder about this because they wonder how the killer got into the house, Aaron White, for example. And also, why did he pick that particular house to begin with? Right. That's up in the air, too. Yeah. So now that I've told you all about uh, the family, I guess it's on to one of you guys. I guess you guys have done a little research on this whole thing. Of so, course. Yeah. yeah I Joe. didn't know
3: we were doing this, so I didn't prepare. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, it, wasn't, it
0: was supposed to be a surprise. Yeah.
3: I mean, yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, uh, let's talk about the night before the murders. Because there's some stuff that goes down. Uh, So that would be Sunday evening, the 9th of June, 1912. Uh, The family had gone to the Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church, which they were members of. And apparently, they were accompanied by two neighbor children, uh, Lena and Ina Stillinger. I believe that's how you pronounce that. And those I think it was Ina. 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 Okay, so uh, Lena and Ina, and Lena was twelve, Ina was eight, and they had had their permission, uh, parents' permission, to stay overnight with the Moore children. So what they did is when they went to they went to church they were going to the end of the year Sunday school program uh, that was called the Children's Day service mm-hmm. and Mrs Moore I, I understood that she was directing it so never mind or part of it anyway so never mind that her children were participating as were just about every other kid in the church uh, but she was involved in that way as well uh, according to accounts, the it, I, this is what I'm not 100% clear on, it says that everything ended at 9.30. And I don't know if that means that the Children's Day event or service ended or if that's when they left the church. Because, you know, those kind of events, people go in, the event happens, and then you stand around and you chit-chat and you catch up with your neighbors. So regardless, though, it, it always says that they left at 9.30. And at that point, they would have walked home which was not very far. It was about a five-minute walk, if I remember correctly. It was three blocks, so yeah, it was even closer than that. But when they got home, everyone had a small snack uh, before going to bed, cookies and milk.
0: And martini's?
4: No, no martinis for the children. Well, maybe for well, the adults. The adults <laughs> maybe yeah. for the adults. Um, and again, not entirely clear when they went to bed, but based on the time, the ages of the kids, and the time at night, I'm guessing that they were probably all in bed, probably quarter after ten or ten thirty, somewhere in that range. Yeah, you know, yeah, this I, was
0: this was back in the day when there was no internet, no TV. You yeah. Know, so you know, you know, and uh,
4: limited, you know, limited lighting. So they're
3: also. Children, like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting at. They're 12 kids. and
4: under, uh, they, yeah.
0: they get exhausted. Well, pretty frankly, quick. Even, as, even if you're an adult, what's the point of staying up? You know, <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's just nothing to do, yeah. So you might as well go sack out, exactly. Uh,
4: but but so it's after that, at some point in the night, it's believed past midnight, but we're not 100% positive that the killer took the axe that was left sitting in the backyard and attacked a family the next morning. So, this is Monday morning, Mary Peckham. ...who was the neighbor. She's 63. She got up at her normal time of 5 a.m. and started her routine. Uh, She said that she noticed the Moore house was surprisingly quiet... Uh, which was weird because normally Joe Moore would get up and go take care of the horses in the backyard before going to his office. And Mrs. Moore tended to wake up the kids before sunrise to get them ready and to do their chores. And when you've got four kids, they make a fair amount of noise in the morning. Yeah, they'd
0: be out there screaming and throwing rocks at each other. Yeah, whatever the case may
4: be, playing because they're kids. So there should have been those noises and none of that was happening. And by eight o'clock that morning, she hadn't seen any of the family. So what Mary did is she went over to the house and she knocked on the door. Nobody answered. She tried to look through the windows, but they were drawn and shuttered. So she couldn't see anything.
3: I saw that there were two windows in the entire house that didn't have shutters or curtains or anything on the inside. And they had clothes tacked up. Is that? Did you also see that? I don't
4: remember seeing
0: that. There were... Yeah. My understanding is that the uh, the windows all had clothes tacked up on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. The clothes, or towels, whatever. Yeah. 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 It, it appears that uh, somebody, you know, we don't know who...
3: Was trying to hide whatever. Maybe
0: hit. like, you know, covered the windows. Right. Yeah.
3: Or okay.
4: somebody in the family did it for privacy reasons because somebody broke... The blinds. That's yeah, I mean, possible. It's possible too, I, right. I know people whose children have pulled the blinds down and they've had to hang a sheet for a couple of days till they get a, get, you know, get a yeah. replacement. Yeah, yeah, such things do enough. happen. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so Mary, she goes over and she looks and she can't see anything. So she uh, goes to the family's uh, chicken coop, lets chickens out, so at least the chickens can be let out for the day, and goes home. Figures, well, maybe Joe's family got ill and they had to leave in the middle of the night. And that's why they're not there. You know, she, she's justifying what's going on is what yeah. she's doing. So after after that, Mary goes back to her house. And here, the events, I've read a couple of different versions of how this went down. And in the simple version, one of Joe's employees came over to the house to get his boss couldn't find couldn't get into the house couldn't see anybody and then left and after and said something to mary and at that point then mary placed a call to joe's brother whose name is ross moore so that's one version that I've heard. Hmm. I've also heard that unbidden by anybody for reasons we don't know, Ross just came over on his own to see the family.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that was the case.
4: I, I don't think so either because yeah. it does sound like there was, you know, a lot. I mean, people were trying to figure out where's Joe, what's going on. So, yeah. What happens, though, is Ross comes over and he does exactly what Mary did. He tries to look through the windows. He can't see anything. Knocks
0: on the door. Knocks
4: on the door. Nobody answers. But, of course, he has the one thing that Mary didn't have, which is a key.
6: Yeah.
0: So I thought you were going to say a crowbar.
4: No. So he unlocks and opens the door.
3: And he goes inside. Where he sees Da-da-da. nothing good. So Mary waited on the porch while Ross went into the parlor. He found Ina and Lena's bodies in the bedroom, um, in the guest bedroom on the bed. Uh, Ross at that point, And that's know, on the first floor. It's on the first floor. Yeah. So Ross at this point calls to Mary and says, hey, go get Hank Horton. He was kind of like the police chief. He was the. The primary peace officer of the town at the time. had yeah, the
0: town marshal or town watchman or whatever you yeah, called yeah, him yeah. in those some, days. Yeah, some yeah,
3: yeah. Something. Some, the person in charge, basically. Probably
0: one of those things where it's a kind of like he's got a day job also. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: So what happens is, um, you know, Ross finds bodies. So he's, you know, either goes back out or calls to Mary and says, go get Hank.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then Ross waits. From all the reporting I can see, waits until Hank shows up. And either Mary called her. There's not the details are not clear here on how Hank got, got there. Yeah, if she went and ran to get him, or if she called, or what. But he was somehow summoned.
4: I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it was a phone call.
0: I think they called. Yeah,
3: I would guess that as well. But I don't know where Hank. I mean, maybe Hank lived two doors down, and so she was like, i oh, gonna yeah, run down that's there." Good point. Anyway, Hank gets back. Hank and Mary and Ross all go into the house and upstairs they find the entire Moore family had um, also been bludgeoned to death. I didn't say that Ina and Lena's bodies showed signs of being bludgeoned to death, but there you go. Yeah, they were. They'd been bludgeoned to death, and as had the entire Moore family. Yeah,
0: I don't even think of that initial look. I don't even think they peeked under the covers. I think that the first person that I've heard of pulled the covers back to see that they were bludgeoned was like the doctor that they brought later on.
3: There's just a lot of blood no, It was just like everywhere. you see
0: these bodies in the bed. There's blood everywhere. You know, you, you, you know, you know
4: what's happened. Yeah. You,
0: know, you know, I'm not sure if it's bludgeoning or shooting or stabbing or what, but you know, they look kind of dead. There's and, some killing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure.
3: So I've, I've heard a few different ways, but I believe that the ax that had been used in all of the bludgeoning deaths was found in the guest bedroom with Ina and Lena's bodies. Yeah,
0: that's what I've heard too. Mm-hmm.
3: So doctors were obviously called as well, and they examined the bodies and the crime scene, and here's what they found. They concluded that the murders had been committed before 5 a.m., but after midnight, probably closer to midnight, um, so in the early, early hours of, you know, the one, two hours of the morning, not the, not the later ones. Mm-hmm. The creepy factor is, of course, upped when they found two cigarette butts in the attic. I'm not totally sure why they were examining the attic in the first place, but they found two cigarette butts up there. That would make sense. That to, seemed reasonably they, spent.
4: Because they would heard of Hinter Kaifek. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They,
3: sorry, I said reasonably. They they seemed um, recently spent. They weren't, you know, it's not uh, as though the kids had been sneaking up there to. Although this and is, and I, I know
0: that. you, I know you will find the, the the cigarette butts in the attic thing on on Wikipedia. But what I've heard is that that this Wikipedia is wrong on that count, and that the actual the entrance to the attic, which the investigators did find the day of the, the discovery of the bodies, is actually in the closet of Joe and Sarah's bedroom in the upstairs, and it was blocked off by boxes and clothing and stuff like that. And so, in order, so it, 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 if there were cigarette butts there, they they weren't left by the killer because the killer, again, when they. When they found the bodies, the closet was full of boxes and clothes. And so if he had hidden there, he would have Not been out, able to get out. Murdered them and then replaced all that stuff back into the closet and and stuff And before he left the house. Unless so,
3: there was an entrance externally.
0: Maybe some other entrance somewhere. And just hanging somewhere. out in the but, attic
3: to be able to hear what was going on in the house.
0: Or maybe that too. But I mean, it's like, you know, there's other, a few places have said that he hid in the, in the cellar. Same thing though. There's no there's no internal entrance from the house. So if he if he's in the cellar, he's got to exit the house and come back into the house, which is not you know, and like same thing crazy with the attic. To me. No, not not insanely crazy, but you know, that's just what I've heard. Though is that the whole wiki thing is not not exactly so correct. So so
4: the killer was Spider-Man. Okay, yeah, yeah, got it. So, yeah.
0: So the, and I, and actually, I've heard another account out there. I can't. I I got to start taking better notes. With, Another account which may have been a little bit of conflation with Hinter because it's very hinter y is that of course they the Moors did have a barn with their horses and they found evidence that somebody had uh, had been sitting on a couple of hay bales there and, and in close proximity to a knot hole in one of the exterior walls that afforded a view of the house and that maybe the killer was hiding in the barn and watching the house from the barn. Hmm. But again, this is That's one, very circumstantial. Yeah, well, and again, I think that this might really be a case of where over the years it's been sort of conflated with Hinterkaifeck a little bit, you know? And But same thing with the attic and stuff. So anyway, Devin, sorry to interrupt your narrative.
3: So the killer is hanging out somewhere, I guess. I don't he know.
0: was hanging out somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe he just came walking up out of the darkness and went right into the house.
3: So the massacre started in the master bedroom with Josiah and Sarah... Just was really, really badly beaten up. He'd been hacked. Um, he'd actually been hacked. Most of the victims had just been bludgeoned with like the blunt side, um, the butt, what you would call the butt of the axe. Um, but he'd actually been cut a number of times with the blade of the axe. In fact, he was beat so badly that his eyes were apparently missing. Which yeah, is that's normal. Pretty. Cr- that's pretty intense. Next, the killer. Because we don't actually know if there was only one killer or not moved to the children's room. Sorry, they obviously, they bludgeoned Sarah as well. At the same time, right. At the same time, right. Then they moved to the children's room. This is where Herman, Catherine Boyd, and Paul all were. They were all beaten with the butt, as previously noted. Then, after returning to the master bedroom to beat up on Josiah and Sarah a bit more, the killer, or Z, (laughs) went downstairs to the guest bedroom where Ina and Lena were, killing them. Lena, it seems, may have been awake when she was murdered. And that would be different from all of the rest of the victims. It looked like they were all asleep when they got bludgeoned, which means the bludgeoning had to have happened pretty dang quickly, especially the children when you're talking about bludgeoning four children to death without waking any of them up in the interim.
4: And they were sharing beds, weren't they? hmm Because, I mean, it's four kids, and you're not a rich... I mean, even a well-off family at that time, it was, it was not uncommon to just Share stack bed. them like cordwood in a... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Totally,
3: yeah. Lena seems to have had signs of defensive wounds, maybe cuts to her arms. There's also speculation that Lena may have been sexually assaulted. She was found... The other reason that people think that she was awake was because she wasn't found... Laying next to her sister in the bed, she was laying across the bed, mm. um, and her nightgown was pulled up to her waist, and she wasn't wearing any underwear, which may or may not be some kind of evidence against something. She was the oldest child; mm-hmm. she was twelve, right? So, other than Sarah, she would have been the closest to adulthood. Adulthood, I guess. So, if some... I, yeah, i
4: was trying to think of a delicate way to say that. Yeah, not. but uh. if
3: some, you know, if the killer was a a pervert, yeah, even more disgusting yeah. than just a murderer. Yeah, can that might have been a thing.
4: Can I uh, just interrupt, just really quickly, about her her nightgown being pushed up? What I never understood, sure. or what I always wondered about, is what I couldn't, because of course, obviously, there's no photographic evidence out there of mm-hmm. the bodies. I always wondered was she, her um, was her waist like on the edge of the bed? Because I could see if a body falls and then starts to slide towards the edge of the bed. Her nightgown would then naturally ride up well, that's to put it of... around her hips, rather than the. I'm insin- gravity
0: could bring it down over her head or something like that. Right, yeah, instead true. of the insinuation
4: yeah. of somebody pulled it up to then do well, some naughty business. The
0: other, the other thing is, is actually um, he he covered everybody's faces. And so there might not have been something immediate. It might have been the closest thing to cover her face with was just the nightdress that she was wearing. Just grab it and pull it up over her face and cover. You know, okay. So it might have been that too. Got it. Cool. But you know, I don't.
3: yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say is that just because her nightgown and she wasn't wearing underwear, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were removed. Plenty of people sleep, you know, without underwear, especially in those days when mm-hmm. you didn't necessarily have twenty pairs. changes of clothes. Yeah. 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 You might just take it off and then put, you know the same pair on and again the next morning.
4: That's how I do it yeah, The one for, for a
0: month.
3: The <laughs> one other weird thing that uh, I want to bring up is that Dr. Lindquist, who was the coroner at the time, he was the one who was examining the bodies. He reported there was a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom laying next to the axe.
0: This is what I've heard. He yeah. said that
3: it was about two pounds and it was wrapped with what he thought might be a dish towel and then a second, like a matching set of slab of bacon was found in the ice box, so it could have been pulled out of the icebox but i don't know it's weird
4: yeah I one's extra bacon to go you that's, know. that's kind but of... there's
3: but it wasn't to go it's just sitting there it was left
4: well what i mean is get it ready to take it to go and then how often have you forgotten your lunch well
0: exactly that's yeah. what i was thinking that yeah i think maybe the killer was going to take it with him and he it was apparently what i heard is it was left in the in the guest bedroom next to the axe which was leaning against yes. the wall yeah And yeah, he might have have just forgotten it.
3: Well, I almost wondered if, and you know, again, it's hard to get a sense of the layout of the house or whatever. But I almost wonder if the killer went in not knowing that Ina and Lena were there Mm
8: -hmm. or at least that
3: they were in the guest bedroom and went upstairs, did all his murdery stuff, came back down, grabbed a slab of bacon, kind of walked near by the guest room and was like, oh. There's, Oops. Oops. there's two more people in there. Well, I got to <laughs> finish the, the job. job. I got to go finish the job. And then, I, you know, for whatever reason, you know, set the bacon down, beat the girls. Maybe he did I end up raping the bacon. Lena at that point. Maybe he put the yeah. bacon in the axe there thinking, OK, I'm going to grab those as I leave, raped her and then just totally forgot because he, I don't know, was hopefully ideally just so disgusted with all the horrible things he'd just done. He just had to leave. But
0: maybe it killed his appetite. I, mean, I, maybe. I think another, another theory is that perhaps he was a, an early animal rights activist <laughs> making a statement about, about the condition of pigs in slaughterhouses. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Maybe that's
3: Possibly. It. Could be. So, yeah, yeah. that was um, the scene of the bodies. Yeah. Scene of the murder, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And a killer the or crime. killers. Who knows which.
0: Right, and then, one last sort of weird thing is that all the mirrors in the house have been covered.
3: Well, and as Probably. we mentioned in passing too, all of the all of the bodies had been the faces, covered. all the bodies, well, the their faces, faces were covered. But and, I think mostly yeah. it was with sheets. Yeah, it was with sheets. So it could have it was mostly most of their bodies.
0: Yeah, it might have been um, kind of a respect thing or something like that. Because apparently, yeah. according to the, to the doctor's testimony that I read. You know, one one good reason to put a sheet or a towel over somebody's face before you beat their head in is to keep the blood spatter down Yeah. Mm-hmm. but apparently they were placed after they were yeah they were placed after, yeah. after the the death the other yeah. thing um, that
4: that we haven't really mentioned is the, I mean Devin brought up the fact that the sharp end of the axe was used on Joe mm-hmm. but he got
0: he got the worst.
4: He though. got the worst well, of that's it. I mean there I was, was like of... what 40 or 50. He took 40 or 50 wax or something like that. Crazy. Yeah. It was some huge number.
3: Well, and that's kind of, I mean that was the thing, you know, the murderer went and murdered the children and I almost wonder if he hadn't really finished the job the first time, you know, and there the Joe was starting to make noises and so he thought well I gotta go kill the kids so they don't uh, wake up and then oh, he's moaning. come back. Yeah. But yeah. I mean he went back like after every single one it seems like he, it seems like the murderer killed Joe and then maybe killed Sarah or hit Joe maybe killed Sarah killed the kids then came back and wailed on Joe a bunch oh, he, more. He
0: will, well, He wailed on all of them a bunch more. Essentially he Whacked him all. I whacked them all at least once, and then and then when he was done, then he came back and just started made with, sure the
4: job was starting done. Starting
0: with the parents, right. just obliterated their faces. But and not as back. not
3: nearly as bad as what happened. to Joe, Joe. got the worst. No, yeah. he
0: did. But but all all of them, their faces were essentially obliterated. Yeah. All mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. And uh, it looks so. It looks like he made the first pass all the way through. Then came back, did all the obliterating, and 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 then he was done.
4: Yep. Yeah. It's the mm-hmm. uh, the what is it from Zombieland? The triple tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the double uh, tap. I, mean, I can't remember which one it is, but little, yeah
0: yeah a little more than that really and uh and then and then apparently like i said he covered all all the mirrors in the house um which may or may not be significant um and uh also hung out a little bit there was uh some stories i've heard there was a plate of food on the table and there was also a basin that was filled with water and that had blood in it so maybe he washed up after the fact you know wanted to wash all the blood off which you know i can't blame him I, yeah I want to no. Wash up. Depending on where you're going to go. It would be fairly disgusting looking, yeah, Yeah. by the end of your whole thing. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah, and then apparently he left the house by, it it appears, through the front door and locked it behind him and took Mm -hmm. the key with him. Because they they know this because the front door had been locked. And the key was the only thing that was missing, so it was gone, so they just assumed he took it with him. Um, And, yeah, nice of him to lock up. Yeah. 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 I I don't know if that's the word I would use. Yeah. Uh huh. All right. Well, that pretty much sums it up. Before we head into our theories, let's take a really brief break. On a summer night in 1967, among the chaos of the Detroit Rebellion, a group of young people were detained inside the Algiers Motel by the Detroit PD. By the end of the night, three of them would be dead, innocent lives lost. An entire city changed forever. Directed by Catherine Bigelow. Catch the premiere of Detroit, starring John Boyega, Anthony Mackie, and Algie Smith. Premiering in theaters August 4th. And created in collaboration with Annapurra Pictures uh, as a companion piece to the movie. Uh, Be on the lookout for a new podcast called Rebellion in Detroit, which is coming soon. It's set in the same period as the film. It's a three-part miniseries about the 1967 riots in Detroit. And it's hosted by actor and Detroit native Courtney B. Vance. Listen along to his podcast and find out what really happened on the streets of Detroit over that hot week in 1967 and why. So remember, Detroit, directed by Catherine Bigelow. And we're back. Okay, we have a few theories here for you, so with no further ado, here we go.
9: Hi, this is Nick. And this is the Captain. From True Crime Garage. Congratulations on putting out a stellar podcast for the last
1: four years. We're both big fans, so cheers to you, mates. Let's grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime.
9: Henry Lee Moore. First off, he is no relation to the Moores that were killed in Villisca. But in our opinion, he is a great suspect to be the perpetrator of the Velisca Axe murders.
1: Henry Lee Moore didn't actually live in Villisca, so how could he be a great suspect, you ask?
9: Well, the Axe murders in Velisca were not the first of their kind. There had been a string of Axe murders going on nationwide before and after the Axe murders in Velisca. Nine months earlier, in September of 1911, six victims were murdered by way of Axe in Colorado Springs.
1: Then in October, there'd be a triple murder in Illinois.
9: After that, the showman family of five were killed in Kansas. In fact, just days before the Vallisca massacre, a husband and wife were slaughtered in Kansas. And there were all similarities in these crimes, but the obvious ones were these were all families being killed in their homes and being taken out with an axe.
1: In most of these cases, the authorities don't have a suspect.
9: Until a federal officer, this is M.W. McClary, he decides that they must be dealing with a transient maniac. Using that theory, he also noticed another commonality in the string of killings. The houses were all located at various points along the Southern Pacific Railway.
1: Now, our suspect, Henry Lee Moore, he worked for the railways. Not only that, but he was a bad, bad man.
9: On December 18th, 1912, this is the day after Henry Moore tells his roommate that he is traveling to Columbia, Missouri to visit his mother, who is taken ill.
1: Henry Lee Moore's mother and grandmother live together.
9: This is Mrs. Georgia Moore and her mother, Mary Wilson their neighbor sees Henry Moore enter his mother's home. A short while later, he goes to the neighbor's house. He says he has just arrived into town and wondered if the neighbor could tell him where his mother was. She says that she believes they would be at home. Henry goes back to his mother's house. Then he comes back to the neighbor's house once again and says, you've got to come with me and see what happened.
1: When the neighbor gets there, what she sees is Henry Lee Moore's mother, dead and grandmother dead murdered by an axe they were hacked to death in their home the grandmother was
9: found in her bed henry's mother was killed by the back door she had a horrible gash in her neck and a deep cut on her forehead that penetrated the brain
1: they'd find an old axe with a blunt edge and a broken handle and they'd consider this the murder weapon
9: now remember henry said that he had arrived into town that morning And upon his arrival, he had found the women dead. Mm -hmm. He was arrested after authorities learned from the neighbor that Henry had entered the home through the back door more than once that morning. They also found blood on him and on his underclothes and later learned that Henry had rented a room at a hotel the night before under a fake name.
1: Getting caught in these little white lies and his story not lining up is not looking good for Henry Lee Moore.
9: Furthermore, neighbors would report that
1: Henry's mother was not ill at all and she was in her normal health. Henry Lee Moore will be found guilty of these murders.
9: Yes, he's sentenced to life in prison for the death of his mother and grandmother. Many at the time suspected that his motive for the
1: murders was in fact money. It also received his family's property once his mother was dead. One investigator,
9: M.W. McClary.
1: It's actually pronounced M.W. McClary.
9: Well, he decided that the motive for the murders was, in fact, that Henry Lee Moore was a serial killer that rode the rails, and he would go to these different homes, break in, and kill the families in their sleep at night. And that he was motivated by the act and thrill of killing itself, and he was a sexual maniac.
1: So what would be Henry Lee's motive? Just the thrill of killing, or possibly Sexual assault, and then covering up his crime.
9: And regarding the murders in Vallisca and the other axe murders that took place in that short time period, well, Henry Lee Moore worked for the
1: railroad. He would have had the means to be in those areas. And the fact that he was found guilty of killing his mother and his grandmother, it would prove that he had the capability and the know how to create a double murder.
9: Look, there are certainly many good suspects in the Vallisca axe murders case. But our guy, Henry Lee Moore, should be considered one of your prime suspects.
1: Thank you guys so much again for letting us be a part of this four-year anniversary. It was so much fun to meet you and hang out with you and drink some brews with you at CrimeCon this year. Look forward to drinking with you again next year. First
9: rounds on you guys. Cheers.
5: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of The Trail Went Sideways. My name is Robin Warder, and I am the host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. The Thinking Sideways crew have asked me to help them out, because not only has the trail gone cold on this case, but the trail is completely frozen solid. I got to meet Joe, Steve, and Devin at CrimeCon, and we all went out to lunch together, and since they picked up the check, they demanded I reimburse them by appearing on this episode. Nah, just kidding. We had an awesome time hanging out that weekend, and I am beyond thrilled and honored to be a guest on their podcast, which is one of my all-time favorites. Anyway, the theory they've asked me to cover for this case involves a suspect named George Kelly, the only suspect who actually stood trial for this crime. What makes Kelly such an unusual suspect is that he was a minister, an unlikely candidate to be an axe murderer. Reverend Kelly was originally born as Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly in England, before he and his wife moved to the United States in 1904. After serving the Methodist Church for years, Kelly suddenly decided that this denomination wasn't for him, so he enrolled in a Presbyterian seminary in 1912. On the evening of June 9th, Kelly was invited to attend the Children's Day services at the Presbyterian Church in Villisca, which, of course, also happened to be attended by the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters right before they were murdered. At 519 a.m. the following morning, Kelly left Veliska by hopping on a train back to his hometown of Macedonia, and it was about three hours later when the victims' bodies were discovered. Now, Kelly put himself on the radar as a suspect when he started writing a nonstop series of rambling letters about the murders, and sending them to the police and the victims' surviving relatives. It seemed like being in Veliska when the murders took place caused Kelly to develop a pretty unhealthy obsession with this case. In fact, one week after the crime took place, Kelly returned to Veliska and went to the trouble of convincing the police to give him a tour of the Moore home. Anyway, one private investigator decided to write Kelly back, and ask him if he knew anything about the murders. Kelly responded with a pretty eye-opening story about how he'd been walking past the Moore home that night, when he heard what sounded like the thud of an axe, and that a man who was likely the killer briefly stepped out onto the porch. Naturally, this made investigators suspicious, but there was no direct evidence that Kelly was involved in the crime, and since he had a history of mental illness and erratic behavior, it was hard to know if his story was actually true. So Kelly dropped off the radar for a while, but he got himself in a bit of trouble in 1914 after he placed a newspaper ad for a stenographer. When a young woman expressed her interest, Kelly wrote back and essentially said that the position was hers as long as she was willing to type in the nude. Well, this woman was mortified, So this letter was turned over to the authorities, and they proceeded to send Kelly a series of dummy letters in which they pretended to be her. This prompted Kelly to respond with some more sexually inappropriate letters, and their content was apparently so offensive that Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. I guess this was essentially the 1914 version of sexting, and he had to spend some time in a mental hospital for it. Well, by 1917, the investigation into other suspects in the Velisca Axe murders had completely fallen through, so they decided to focus their attention on Kelly again. The police brought Kelly in and interrogated him non-stop over the course of an entire night until he finally broke down and confessed to the murders the following morning. He claimed that God had commanded him to kill every person in the Moore household that night and that he essentially did this while in a trance-like state. Of course, Kelly soon recanted his confession, but he still went on trial for the murder of Lena Stillinger. It seems like he was specifically charged with that one particular murder, because in addition to the incident involving the obscene letters, there were a lot of unsavory rumors about Kelly being a peeping Tom, and abusing his position to ask young girls to pose nude for him. The logic seemed to be that since Kelly was a sexual deviant, that's why Lena was found partially nude. Maybe Kelly had become fixated on her at the Children's Day services that night, so he decided to follow her to the Moore home and then proceeded to kill everyone inside with an axe. The evidence against Kelly at trial was his confession, the letters he'd written about the murders, and the fact that he'd sent out a bloody shirt to be laundered only a week after the crime took place. There were also witnesses who claimed that they'd heard Kelly discussing the murders on his train trip from Veliska to Macedonia on June 10, 1912, Remember, this train had left Villisca at 519 a.m., three hours before the bodies were discovered, so how could Kelly have known about the murders unless he had been there? Well, the problem is that the witnesses who supposedly heard him talk about this changed their story, and given how questionable Kelly's confession was, this was hardly an airtight case. As a result, the jury wound up being deadlocked at 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal, so Kelly had to go on trial again, And this time, he was acquitted, and that pretty much closed the books on him. This also kind of brought the investigation to a dead halt, and that's about as close as they ever came to solving the Villisca Axe murders. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. So here's my personal take on Reverend George Kelly as a suspect. He is most definitely a strange person and a major pervert, but I really don't think the evidence is there which points to him being the perpetrator. From the sound of things, the police only decided to charge Kelly five years after the fact because they'd gotten pretty desperate to close the case. You're going to hear other podcasters discuss the theory that Iowa State Senator Frank Fernando Jones hired a guy named William Mansfield to commit the murders, but after the investigation into them fell apart, I think there was a feeling that somebody had to go down for this crime and Kelly was a convenient scapegoat. In fact, there were rumors that Senator Jones pressured investigators to orchestrate a frame-up job on Kelly in order to take the spotlight off himself. Now, Kelly's alibi on the night of the murders was that he was asleep, but it's not like anyone could officially verify it. During his trip to Villisca, Kelly stayed at the home of a local minister named William J. Ewing. On the evening of June 9th, Ewing claimed that he showed Kelly to his bedroom at 11 p.m. before he went to sleep, and that Kelly was already gone by the time Ewing woke up the following morning. We know that Kelly's train departed at 5.19am, so he would have had a window of about six hours to commit the murders. Ewing and his wife were called in to testify at Kelly's trials, and they stated that they believed his bed had been slept in that night. Now, Kelly was left-handed, and the coroner believed the blood spatters at the scene indicated that the killer swung the axe left-handed. However, the biggest point in Kelly's favor was that he was a pretty small fellow at only 5'2 and 119 pounds. So would he really have been capable of murdering eight people with an axe single-handedly? The fact of the matter is, is that there's no direct evidence placing Kelly at the scene. All we really have is a coerced confession, unreliable eyewitness testimony, and a strange guy who developed a strange obsession with this crime. I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible that Kelly could have done it, but in my eyes, he just seemed like nothing more than a convenient scapegoat, and if there hadn't have been so much pressure to solve the case at that time, I'm not sure he ever would have been charged. So I'm inclined to think that the Velisca Axe murders were committed by someone else. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening, and thanks again to Joe, Steve, and Devin for having me on here.
7: Charlie and Allie here from the Insight Podcast. We are covering one of the suspects who made maybe the biggest news partly because of who he was in the community.
10: And that suspect is Frank Jones. He owned a large and successful store in Villisca and Josiah Moore worked for him for something like nine years. He helped found a bank in the town and was at the time serving as a state representative and he later became a state senator. He spent 25 years as a superintendent of Sunday School for the Methodist Church. I know, something that you would look at as a murderer for sure. Now, the reason people looked at him as motive.
7: After working for Frank Jones for years, Josiah opened his own hardware store and he worked in direct competition to Frank. Not only that, but he took the John Deere portion of the business with him when he left. Some people who work in corporate jobs today, they have to sign paperwork when they're hired that they won't take clients or accounts with them if or when they leave the company. This is why non-compete clauses have prevented many axe murders. I am sure of that. And according to one source I read, the two men, who obviously didn't speak to each other, would go as far as to cross the street to avoid each other.
10: And then there was gossip. Frank Jones had a daughter-in-law named Donna. Dona had a reputation for meeting with men without her husband or a chaperone present. Back in those days, you couldn't just make a private phone call. You had to go through a central operator who could, should she choose, listen in. She could then, should she choose, tell the whole town about your business. Now, it is rumored that Dona and Joe arranged their meetups by telephone, so a business competitor and rumored to be having an affair with his daughter-in-law but there was dual motives for frank jones
7: eventually the rumors of frank jones involvement led to an investigation into him not being the murderer himself but rather being the money behind a murder for hire plot the man they thought wielded the axe is a potential serial killer named william mansfield Mansfield would later be suspected in the murder of his own family years later. One man in particular really believed this theory. James Wilkerson, a private investigator, was convinced that Frank Jones hired William Mansfield to kill the Moore family. He also believed other killings across the Midwest were connected, and he connected them all to William Mansfield. He said that he could prove Mansfield was in every area on the nights of all of these murders.
10: Frank Jones, tired of the rumors, which eventually escalated to posters hung up around town accusing him of the crime, he sued Wilkerson for slander. The best defense to slander is to prove what you said is true. So the defamation suit became kind of a mini murder trial for Frank Jones. Wilkerson had various eyewitnesses who saw and heard things related to the crime. This civil trial, however, happened in 1916, so four years after the murders. So why did no one say any of this at the time of the murders, and why are they only saying it now? One witness, who had years previously testified at the inquest that he saw nothing unusual, was now testifying, saying he saw the son of Frank Jones enter the Moore home while the Moors were still at the children's program.
7: In the end, Wilkerson was found not guilty of slander. Now, that's not to say the jury believed Frank Jones was involved in the murders, but that there was enough evidence that accusing him of being involved did not rise to the level of slander. A grand jury was convened, and the state sought an indictment against Mansfield. The details are private, as they tend to be with grand juries, but in the end, they failed to indict Mansfield, reportedly because he had a payroll receipt and it proved that he was in illinois at the time of the murders this essentially ended the legal case against frank jones but this widely held belief that he used his influence to sway the investigation and the results of that investigation away from himself it ruined his political career
10: now to me jones had a lot to lose if it ever came out that he was involved in the murders and i can't see say- Look, even if he was, I imagine he would have had it all sewn up tight so it could never be traced back to him. But honestly, I think him being tied to the case is just a case of Mansfield's obsession with the murders.
7: One of the things that really leads me away from him is that slander case. He had to know, with his own background, that taking a defamation case to court, saying he's saying I'm a murderer, I'm not a murderer... That was going to turn into a de facto murder trial for him. And if he had something to lose, I don't think he would have done that.
10: Because a lot of dirt could have come out in that defamation case. He was risking a lot.
7: Right. And I don't think he would have risked it over a defamation case that was already going to be difficult to win because defamation cases are famously difficult to win.
2: I'm Nina from the Already Gone podcast. and. Velisca isn't the only place for an axe murder. How about Blue Island, Illinois, 1914? Blue Island is in Cook County, just south of Chicago, and on July 6, there was a gruesome axe murder of a family. Jacob Neslesla, his wife, their daughter, and their infant grandchild were killed. The survivor of the attack? Jacob's son-in-law, William Mansfield. Mansfield was working out of town when his family was killed, and we know that two years later, in the summer of 1916, Mansfield was working for the railroads in Kansas City. Now, Mansfield was thought to be a troublemaker because of his work as a union organizer. This Detroit girl knows how poorly union organizers were thought of by those in positions of power, particularly at the start of the 20th century. James Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency, he felt that because of what happened in Illinois years earlier, Mansfield was good for the murders. He was convinced that Senator Jones hired Mansfield to do the deed. Wilkerson went so far as to hang up hundreds of flyers on lampposts all over the city, labeling the fair-haired, blue-eyed Mansfield, William Blackie Mansfield, and implying that Jones had hired him to commit the murders on his behalf. Mansfield was arrested and brought before a Montgomery County grand jury. Mansfield's attorneys, they produced payroll records and witnesses that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Velisca attack. Mansfield was released, and he filed suit against Wilkerson and the notoriously anti-union Burns Detective Agency. He received $2,200 in damages. In today's money, that's a $50,000 settlement. Devin, Steve, Joe, congratulations on four years of making the magic happen. Can't wait to see what you do
8: next. Hey everyone, this is Michael from the Unresolved Podcast. The Villisca axe murders remain one of America's most enduring mysteries, because of the brutality of the crimes and the eerie mystery that followed. One of the theories that surfaced in the days afterwards hinged on the witness statements provided by Faye Van Gilder, the daughter of matriarch Sarah's sister, and it involved the inclusion of a man known by the name of Joe Ricks, who was found the very next day with circumstantial evidence. Faye Van Gilder, the 16-year-old niece of Joseph and Sarah Moore, had stated that she had seen a man on the morning before the murders. Faye told investigators that this man had been demanding to know where the Moore family lived. When she gave the rough description of the man to her aunt, Sarah Moore, hours before the older woman's death, she was told that a man matching that description had been hanging around the area suspiciously. So, it stands to reason that whoever this man was, he was likely involved in the murders. Or, at the very least, should have been suspected of them. At least one other witness in Vallisca recalls seeing a man, who would call himself Joe Ricks, in the town of Valiska that day, asking for directions. This would become relevant the day after the murders, on June 10th of 1912, when Joe Ricks shuffled off of a train wearing bloody shoes. That's right, you heard me correctly. Joe Ricks had traveled to Monmouth, Illinois, from a town just fifteen or so miles south from Villisca, named Clorinda. When he got off of the train, a state away, other travelers became alarmed by the blood-on his shoes, meaning that it must have been somewhat noticeable. Police were contacted and Joe Ricks was detained. Faye Van Gilder, the niece of the murdered family, was transported out to Illinois along with a county attorney to identify the man. She did not recognize Joe Ricks as the man she had seen the day before, but I'd like to remind everyone listening how trustworthy eyewitness testimony can be. If someone asked you to identify a person you briefly saw a week beforehand, could you? Especially if that person had done anything to change their appearance whatsoever, as Joe Ricks could have possibly done. Either way, Joe Ricks told investigators that he had obtained the bloody shoes in a trade with another passenger on the train. A tramp, so to speak. Does that sound fishy to you? because it sounds pretty freakin' fishy to me. I mean, who would trade for bloody shoes? After Faye Van Gilder was unable able to identify the man she had seen on the morning before the murders as Joe Ricks, police never further investigated him and just simply let him go. I personally think that this was a major mistake in the investigation, and it's a reason why the story is still unresolved.
6: Hi, we are Thin Air Podcast, which is me, Daniel Calderon.
11: And me, Jordan Sims.
6: If you haven't heard of us, our podcast covers cold missing persons cases and the social issues behind them. So when our friends at Thinking Sideways asked us to discuss this creepy murdery case, we were like, yes, awesome. But it's also somewhat different from what we regularly do.
11: Our podcast usually features one missing persons case at a time. Daniel and I take turns telling each story, so we don't really interact with one another in our episodes. So, what we're going to try today is I have done some research on this case. Daniel is going to kind of come in blind.
6: Yeah, I have no, I've not, I don't even know the name of this case, actually.
11: (laughs) Right. So, it's going to be an interesting experience to kind of see how it goes. The way that we're going to talk today is not the tone of and structure of our regular show. We're much more serious. We don't talk back and forth, but today we're, you know, we're experimenting. Trying something new. Yeah, Yeah. I'm excited. If you want to check out one of our regular normal episodes that are not like this, we would love for you to check us out over at thinairpodcast.com. We're also, you know, Facebook, Twitter, the whole shebang. So, yeah, feel free to check us out.
6: So what is the case that... We're talking about today.
11: It's it's a very ho- horrific, notorious crime. This happened on June 9th of uh, 1912. In the house this night are Joe, Sarah, their four children, and the two sisters who are spending the night.
6: Someone comes in with an axe and kills all eight people?
11: Yeah. So these were really grisly set of murders. They're known as the Villisca Axe Murders. Uh, And today our task is not to go into detail about the specifics of the crime itself, but we have a theory. And our specific theory was the theory of George Myers. So we're going to launch into that right now. This is where we flash forward 19 years or so to March 28th, 1931. This is when a man named Leroy Robinson, also known as George Myers. I think he's more known as George Myers. Okay, um, He's sitting in a jail in Detroit, Michigan. He burglarized a house. All the reports I could find online. We used research at the time. So newspapers around this time. Said that he was burglarizing a home and he had been trapped inside, which to me is like how kind you, of a stupid how do you criminal. Get trapped thing. inside of a house? yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like in is a like, chimney
6: or like you get your foot stuck in the dishwasher. Like you
11: close yourself in a closet hoping no one sees you, and then
6: you get stuck in the closet, locked in the closet, You get
11: trapped in the closet. <laughs> so to me, this says he's not the smartest man alive. Yeah, if you're getting trapped inside a house you're robbing, you're not like a master. But the criminal. thing about the
6: Morris person is that were they smart?
11: Okay. I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't like that was like this super high-tech criminal mind yeah. thing. But I mean, he
6: covered all the windows, though, and took he, all that time. Yeah. I mean.
11: Yeah, okay. Just because he got caught doesn't mean he couldn't have committed this crime. Sure. But to me, they seem sort of okay incongrui- incongruous. Incon- can you tell me how to say that In word? Incongrational. Okay, perfect. So he's sitting in this jail. Detroit police receive an anonymous letter. And this letter basically says, I have the exact thing. I should probably read it. If you go to the Wayne County Jail and interview a man named Myers, you will learn something about a murder in Villisca, Iowa, 19 years ago, a particularly horrible murder.
6: Okay. Okay. I mean, it's obvious what murder they're referring to.
11: I mean, right. It also says murder. One. When you say murders, I mean. Or would you all roll them into I, one? I
6: guess it could. Yeah, I don't know.
11: I don't know either. Tricky anyway, noun. Tricky noun. So uh, they go to Myers, L- Leroy Robinson, our guy, and they say, hey, did you do this? You know, we got this letter. And at first he denies it and he's sort of, um, no, you're not going to pin this on me. Uh, how dare you? I- I've never been there. Uh, and then. He confesses. Newspapers at the time published what he said, and I've taken a selection of that. So this is a, a direct quote from his statement, his okay. confession. The basic story is that he, at the time in June of 1912, was in Kansas City, which is about two and a half hours south by car from Volisca. A man approaches him. So here's his his statement, just to set it up. Sure. I just got out of jail. I guess I was having a drink when a man walked up and looked me over. After a few drinks, he told me there was a family in Villisca he wanted to get rid of and that it was worth $5,000 to be done. I agreed to do it. He said he didn't care how it was done, except that there must be no shooting as it would make too much noise. For me, the plot thickens with this stranger because why... Why would you have a vendetta against an entire family? So there's the theory with the senator who had this very spiteful relationship with Joe Moore. So maybe this stranger was somehow connected to the senator. But it's like he specifically says, I have a family that I need taken care of. Why on earth would you want a whole family of people killed?
6: What did these kids do to you? You don't need a whole family murdered for a particular reason. I can't think of an example. Right. Where a whole family would need to be.
11: For vindictive reasons. Yeah. Okay. So the second part of George Meyer's statement was this. He says that he met the man in Valiska on June 9th. So the same day as the crime. He takes a train there. He meets him there. And this guy says, all right, here's $2,000 for this crime. I'll give you the rest tomorrow. Um, and here is his quote on his statement of committing the actual crime. I walked around a while and found an ax. I picked it up, thinking it would be a good thing in the killing. That night, I got into the house with a knife. I saw a man asleep in a downstairs bedroom. I hit him once with the axe. His wife moved a little, so I hit her. Then I walked upstairs and saw four children in bed. I hit them with the blade side of the axe and ran out of the house, dropping the axe downstairs.
6: So, semi-consistent, but with what actually happened, but not entirely.
11: There's actually quite a few inconsistencies in his original statement. So the first major inconsistency, and I think this was a big thing that later made people go he didn't do this, was he only confessed to killing six people. He never talked about the girls downstairs. To me, another inconsistency is the idea that he drops this axe as he's running out of the house. Yeah. To me, this was not a fast, there's no running involved in this crime. There's it was slow. methodical. Method- yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The axe was found downstairs, like he says. So he says he drops it downstairs, which is accurate. That's definitely a fact that would have been published in this crime. He says that when he went to meet the man the next day that he never showed up and he was so mad that he just left town.
6: OK, you killed eight people. Right. And you didn't get your money. Right. And you're just going like- to. The only
11: reason you did it. allegedly. Yeah.
6: Like I would get who's what's your name you know at the like, very least yeah what's your yeah. name how can I find you how can I get a hold of you like I'm not letting him right. get away.
11: He's discredited pretty quickly. Okay, um, I don't think people took him seriously as a suspect after his confession was out. He got so many details of this case wrong that even looking at the theory, I I kind of go yeah I don't I don't think he did it. For me, the bigger mystery is why would you confess to a crime you didn't commit and who sent this letter to the jail about him to me that's kind of this bigger mystery yeah because why would you confess to this horrific crime that you had nothing to do with
6: so I guess one of the only questions that I have left is whatever happened to George Myers
11: so the only thing I could find was days later so it seemed like this story was totally hot for like a moment and then on March 30th so, two, like, two days later, he's sentenced to 14 and a half to 15 years in prison for this burglary that he commits. Um, there's a note in there that he, around this time, attempted to jailbreak with 10 other inmates. And that's basically it. Only a note that he was never charged for the crime in Iowa. That's it.
6: And then gone. Gone. Wow.
11: For me, I mean, I don't buy it. I he don't doesn't buy it doesn't hold up for you? No, I don't think he had anything to do with it, but... I don't understand. I don't understand the letter and I do not understand why you would confess to this if you have nothing to do with it.
6: Yeah. All right. Well, um, so, I mean, those are all the questions that I have remaining about.
11: I mean, that's basically all there is about our friend George Myers, Leroy slash Leroy Robinson. So
6: there you have it. There you have it. Uh, If you've enjoyed listening to our banter and want to listen to our podcast.
11: That's scripted and not interactive in any way. A lot different.
6: (laughs) Go to thinairpodcast.com and listen to some of our reports on unsolved missing persons cases.
11: And thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We'd love doing this.
6: Sideways team.
12: This is Aaron. And with me is Justin. We're the Generation Y Podcast.
13: How are you thinking sideways folks doing tonight?
12: Talking about the Villisca axe murders.
13: One of the suspects they were looking into was a man named Andrew Sawyer. Nothing to do with the uh, character in the show Lost. How this comes about is there's a man named Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa. And he's a foreman for the Burlington Railroad. Andy Sawyer uh, is looking for a job. He's a transient. And he approaches Thomas, asks if there's any work to be had. They describe Sawyer as clean-shaven. He was wearing a brown suit. Uh, His shoes were dirty and his pants were wet. They said that Sawyer would purchase a newspaper about the Axe murders and was very interested in the story. Dyer says that Sawyer slept in his clothes and kept to himself a lot. Now, maybe he slept in his clothes because he didn't have any other clothes. I, I don't know what what they're getting at there. But the real creepy issue is they say that Sawyer slept with his axe.
12: Do you sleep with your axe, Aaron? I don't have an axe, Justin, so I don't know if I would or not. <laughs> I would. I would say I probably wouldn't. Sawyer had a lot of information about the ax murders
13: and would brag to Dyer and the other workmen about how he got away and precisely where he ran from. He describes, uh, the area where a man jumped over a manure box and said, that's how he escaped and pointed at, uh, footprints in the ground. And he even took Dyer's son, who is named J.R., over to the other side of the car to show him these footprints and an old tree. So we have a guy who is very interested in the murders, who sleeps with an axe, which is the murder weapon used, and seems to have some inside information about the details of how the murderer got away. That seems kind of suspect, right?
12: Right. Well, and as you said, he was looking for a job. It wasn't even just this that he was talking about this case, but they said that his eyes looked mad. They looked glassy. So he was not really fitting in well with the other guys that were working in this area. They were all nervous of him.
13: Yeah. One night he, he jumps up and says, I'll cut your goddamn heads off. I don't know if he was actually saying it to anybody or just saying it in general, but
12: that's crazy town. I think you have to take him at his word. You have to really respect what he's saying and take heed because they said when they first tried to put him to work, they could tell that he had lied about his experience. You know, they asked him if he was good with uh, steam engines and he said, oh, yeah, but he had no idea what he was doing. So then they had him sharpening Uh, sharpening piles. They were driving these poles into the river. They said with his axe, he could sharpen things up pretty quick. So he was obviously good with his axe. You know, the one he slept with.
13: The only reason why I I guess I don't feel he's a legit suspect is the uh, officials say that he was arrested for vagrancy in another part of town, the night of the murders. So, If that's true, obviously he has a pretty good alibi. I guess we're all into true crime. We're all interested in activities that go around us. So him buying the newspaper and reading about the murders maybe shouldn't be that suspect. Also, maybe he read something in the newspaper that talked about the escape route that the the
12: murderer took. I don't know. Well, his co-workers contacted the sheriff and the sheriff spoke with him, but they didn't arrest Sawyer. They let him go. And it seemed as though at least his co-workers thought he could have committed these murders because they thought he was crazy and he loved his acts too much. But he ended up quitting and going back home to his family, of all things. So he did have a family. It wasn't like he was just off on his own. Uh, He was just looking for work.
13: I guess if they vetted him properly, then I'm going to disregard him as a suspect. But if that's only going off of the arrest for vagrancy.
12: Yeah, they did vet his stories. Uh, The sheriff supposedly went through with him, his timeline, where he was, what he had been up to as best they could. In the end, there will always be people who look at, at Andy Sawyer and say, oh, he's a very good suspect. But at least as far as law enforcement at the time was concerned, he doesn't really check out to be a good suspect. But if you're looking for someone just crazy enough to commit such a horrible series of murders in a home like as to what happened in this case, yeah, I mean, he does seem crazy. But these are the accounts of his co-workers, and um, just like any other case, we don't know what he was going through at the time, and so since we don't have interviews with people who knew him for years and years, we don't get a good complete picture of Andrew Sawyer. We just have, what was he like around the time of the murders? Well, he was crazy and he slept with his ax. Happy anniversary
0: thinking sideways.
3: Do you guys like that?
0: Okay. Well, that was pretty awesome. Uh, first off, uh, a, a very huge? fun. Thank yeah, you. That was thanks. totally cool. Now it's some great theorizing there. And, uh, And first off, I think we had to thank the Captain and Nick from True Crime Garage, Robin Warder from Trail Went Cold, and uh, gosh, who else? Allie and Charlie from Insight. Nina Uh, from Already Gone. Nina. Thanks, Nina. And of course- Michael
3: from Unresolved.
0: Yeah. Jordan and
3: Daniel from Thin Air, and our besties, Aaron and Justin from Gen Y.
0: Yeah, you guys. Once again,
4: we've got him interning.
3: Yeah, so, you it's guys. Perfect.
0: Yeah, no, great job. Way to point the finger of guilt. I mean, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> all of you. And we, we like that now. Yeah. Um, and so, well, you guys have any favorites yourselves among the suspects?
3: Um, no. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard because, I mean, really, honestly, I I think they are all good suspects, but none of them are great. Well, and there,
4: yeah. there appears to be a lot of axe murdering going on in yeah. that, that neck of the country at yeah. that time. So it's really difficult. You know, you think about, uh, like, Henry Lee Moore, and he, there's killings, but then there's Andy Sawyer, who likes to sleep with his axe. So, I mean, yeah. Andy's kind of my favorite, just because the weirdo factor. Uh. I
3: don't know. I just, I don't think he was a kid. Necessarily, no. It's, it's the weirdo doing factors this with... sort of thing. I mean, I think he just had some issues going yeah. on. You know.
0: Well, actually, if I if I lived in a, in a time when there were axe murderers, go, murderers running around all over the place, I'd probably sleep with my axe too, if yeah. not a revolver or something. Yeah. I can't really blame Andy for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That the, the only one of these, these people that actually went to trial was, of course, the Reverend Kelly, mm-hmm. who actually confessed, uh, although his confession is of dubious quality. Yeah, very uh, dubious. I, I had heard that he actually confessed to the sinking of the Lusitania. <laughs> <laughs> not <Nah>, seriously. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I think this he guy had some issues. confessed to everything. Yeah. I think he had some issues. I agree. but uh, well, he was
4: also a big perv, so. Yeah.
0: yeah I, I wanted to throw in more, one more suspect, by the way. Oh boy. Yeah. One more suspect. Uh, my murder suspect is Josiah Moore, who by the way, was never actually positively identified. I mean, oh, I, I read the, the testimony from the doctor that I, and they were all essentially, they went into the bedroom and they pulled back the covers and then they, they saw him all with his face obliterated and everything. And the doctor said, yep, yeah, that's Joe. And that's it. I think that's, I don't think they ever actually, obviously dental records are out. Facial recognition is, is right out. Um, I don't... It's I, also
3: 1912, so it's not as though, like, finger pr- fingerprinting was in its infancy. No, and... his
0: fingerprints would not have been on file anywhere. If, How did they identify the, the body?
4: But if that's the doctor, the doctor may have seen Joe with his shirt off, and, I don't know, maybe Joe had a, you know, a sc- set of scars or birthmarks or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, very defining features.
0: My, my understanding from the testimony was that it was just assumed right off the bat by everybody that it was, it was Josiah yeah. and Sarah in the bed dead. Okay,
3: well, here's a question. Yeah. Yeah. If it was Josiah, why would he commit this series of murders when the neighbor girls were over and yeah, kill them exa- too? If he wanted to kill his entire family, what? He snapped.
4: Exactly. That, that children's day service <laughs>
0: just pushed him just over pushed the him edge, right over exactly. the edge. Exactly. I'm not saying this theory has no holes in it. Uh, But, I mean, it 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 doesn't... Like Lusitania? I was going to say, it's
3: kind of like Swiss cheese.
0: Yeah, it does, it does. But that would explain one thing, which is why the killer went to extra lengths to obliterate his face more than anybody else's. True. Of course, it could be the killer especially hated him. I think you're Uh, making this up. Or it could be the killer had... It could be... And here's another another possibility, and one that I actually think is the strongest one, is that uh, I think it was a random serial killer. Huh. And uh, maybe it may have been this guy who might have had issues with his own dad, and so dad and his family came in for a little extra abuse. Hmm. But if you, if you look at some of the other axe murders, and it's, I'm not the first person to actually try to tie this in with a lot of other random axe murders that took place across the Midwest. But there was a lot of murdering there going There were on. a lot of them, and what they all had in common was their proximity to railroad tracks. Actually, uh, riding the rails was a common way to get around back in those days. And so without getting into you know incredible detail about all these other murders, let's just say that uh, you know I think that there might just be a tie-in there. And it could it, it's entirely possible this was just a, a, a random thing. This guy might have gotten off the train, walked up the street towards their house, trying doorknobs until he found a house that was unlocked, and that didn't have a dog, and just walked in and did his thing, and then just walked back down to the train tracks and left
3: i yeah, I mean maybe my question then would be why the master bedroom seemed to have been the furthest away from the door, uh-huh. so why go all the way in and murder your way all the way out on the chance that somebody might wake up and notify the rest of the house? Why mm-hmm. wouldn't you start from the beginning and work your way back
0: oh oh I, I see, what you see i I think that if it were me what I would do first is I would identify the probably the parents and kill them first because those are the people, especially the dad, who are most likely to have a gun. Or or be able to overpower you. Or be able to overpower you or whatever, yeah. Um, So that's why I would definitely kill mom and dad first. Fair enough. I would, yeah. Yeah course you know i'm not a killer i don't know but yeah uh so that we know of yeah yeah well that's a good point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know like you guys that's why you guys should be glad we're doing commercials because that gives that means i have a financial incentive not to kill you <laughs>
3: true <laughs>
0: yeah uh, so, yeah, keep those commercials coming, kids. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, enough of those dark theories. But that's, that's, that's my theory, essentially, is that it probably was a random dude. Uh, you guys? No? Okay. Well, let's wrap this one up, then. Uh, all right. First of all, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. You guys, yeah. too. Thanks yeah. for doing something special. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, you probably have your own theories out there, uh, so you can reach us via email at thinking sideways podcast at gmail dot com. Uh we also have a website which is uh thinking sideways where you can find our episodes and download them and there are all, there are also links to merch at Redbubble and Zazzle. Mm-hmm. Uh you can get shirts and mugs and all kinds of cool stuff. And where else? We're on iTunes. Find us on iTunes if you haven't already, and you probably have, but if you are so inclined, uh give us a rating and a review, preferably good ones. And uh, you can stream us from all kinds of places, including, what, Stitcher, is a big one, and a lot of others. And where else? Social media, Facebook. We're on Facebook, where you can, like, join the group and like the page. Is that the the order it works in? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and, uh, of course, we're on Reddit, uh, where we are thinking sideways. And we are on Twitter, where we are thinking sideways. Uh, What am I forgetting, guys? Can't think of I think of that's it. I think that's, that's about all of it. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, you did so, that all
4: from memory. Good job. Uh, I I'm, I'm getting
0: better. It's only taken four years. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's it. Uh, and again, we want to hear from you guys. If you live in Beliska or nearby, uh, we'd love to hear from you, especially who your favorite theories are. My understanding is that the town kind of split between Methodists and Presbyterians after this whole thing happened because the Moors were Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. And the the chief the chief accusee was Frank Jones, who was a Methodist, and so that there was a big, apparently it was a big controversy for years in this town. Hmm. Um, and he, yeah, that's a. But other than that, okay. Uh, so if you're either a Methodist or Presbyterian from Villisca, we'd like to hear from your side of the story. Uh, <laughs> all right, until next week, uh, toodaloo. We we'll talk to you later, guys.
3: Bye, guys. Beep.